right, back on the Young Turks. Let me read a couple of comments first, then we'll go to the interviews. Uh, Dragonfly, hearkening uh, back to the Joe Biden controversy from earlier in the show, says the Warren comparison really puts the creepiness in perspective and the misogyny that we can't envision women doing similar things. That is an interesting point. Uh, that you know, when I mentioned Elizabeth Warren, uh, the idea of her smelling a guy's hair and kissing the back of his head seems unimaginable, right? So if that's unimaginable, why is it okay for guys to do it uh, to women? So it's wonderful point, Dragonfly. Thank you. Gabby Marita says, the right wing wants the smallest possible government for themselves and the biggest possible government for everyone else. Uh, that also sounds about right. And finally, old punk 721 asks about Scott Lloyd. Uh, if he has such firm convictions, why was he squirming and evading? Um, referring to his tape on the deposition and during the congressional hearings. That's because, uh, and, and obviously that goes towards the point that you're making. They don't even really believe their positions. They know that it's a terrible, terrible thing uh, to deny a young woman an abortion after she was raped. And Scott Lloyd knows that and every right winger knows that. Uh, that's why they squirm and evade when asked directly. All right, uh, let's move on to a completely different topic, but it is about uh, elections. Joining me now is Harvard Law Professor uh, Larry Lessig. And uh, we've talked to him a lot about uh, electoral integrity in the past uh, on several different issues. Uh, this time it's about ranked choice voting. Welcome back, Larry. Great to be here, Cenk. All right, so tell us about what we can do in the presidential primaries that might make a difference in our democracy. Well, you know, we have a primary, I think there's now about 140 candidates uh, running for the Democratic <laughs> primary. Um, and one way we can make that system more rational is if we adopt what we could call what's called ranked choice voting. So what ranked choice voting would do is give people the chance to rank their first choice, their second choice, their third choice. Um, and then when the votes are tallied, um, if your first choice turns out not to get 15% of the vote or more, then your first choice is dropped and your second choice vote is then counted. Um, and so we're in the process of um, trying to get New Hampshire to adopt this ranked choice voting method so that after the New Hampshire primary, we'll have both the ranking of who, who won first, second, third under the first choice um, method, but also we'd have a good way to measure um, who actually gets the support of a majority of uh, New Hampshire voters by using the ranked choice method um, in addition. So next week, this bill will be introduced in the Senate and, um, and we hope we can move it through the uh, legislature uh, in time for 2020. So uh, what's the idea here in terms of what we're trying to protect? Uh, what is the problem at hand that we're solving for? Well, you know, if you've got a system that's just worried about who gets first past the post or who gets the most votes, the people at the top don't really have to worry about what anybody else in the uh, in the election cares about. Because if you're, you know, Joe Biden, um, assuming he makes it through this series of troubling uh, questions, um, or whoever it is, um, all you're worried about is getting the most votes so you get the most uh, uh, delegates. Um, but with ranked choice, you're interested in not only getting the most votes, but also getting the votes of the people who don't do quite as well as you. So somebody like Andrew Yang, who's obviously pushing universal basic income um, as a primary issue that he cares most about, uh, he would be ignored typically in an ordinary uh, primary system. But in this system, people are interested in making sure that maybe if Andrew Yang doesn't become the number one uh, vote getter, uh, then his number two choices 
uh, might go for somebody else, and that person might be able to persuade them by taking Andrew Yang seriously. So what it does is, interestingly, it, it both includes more views, more views become relevant, um, but it helps us find candidates who, who are actually standing for a significant chunk of the Democratic base. That helps us figure out candidates who would be supported most strongly by the Democratic Party. And finally, what it does is create a real incentive for people um, not to diss other Democratic candidates in a way that makes it, it really turns them off so that they're not willing to support them in their number two or number three ranking. So we think it could really improve the opportunity of this primary to get down to some uh, you know, serious candidates uh, relatively quickly while considering the views of other candidates and including them where they might uh, persuade voters. So let's talk about another scenario here. Uh, let's stay with the, the people that you mentioned. Somebody wants to vote for Andrew Yang in New Hampshire, but uh, they're worried that Joe Biden's gonna get more votes than Bernie Sanders and, and they uh, don't want Biden to win. Uh, Sanders is their second choice, but Yang would be their first choice. Uh, so then they're very likely not going to vote for Andrew Yang, even though they liked him the best because they're worried about electability. And so then all the people that are below the threshold, they get they have a double disadvantage in a sense. Is that right? Under the existing system, that's exactly right. But under ranked choice, uh, uh, they have a reason to vote for Andrew Yang because you know they might believe Andrew Yang um, is pushing really important ideas, which I think he is. Um, not only is he talking about UBI, he's also talking about fundamental reform and the way we fund campaigns. He's one of the first candidates to come out openly to support vouchers as a way to fund congressional campaigns. And he supports ranked choice voting as well. So Andrew Yang, um, uh, you know, you might be your first choice, but if he doesn't make it past the 15% threshold, then your vote uh, pivots over to your second choice. So it could be Bernie Sanders is your second choice. Um, or, um, you know, um, it could be another person who doesn't make it. And if that's true, then it goes to your third choice. And so the point is you continue to move your vote until it gets to a person who has at least 15% or more. Um, and so your vote is never wasted, but you have a chance to express your support for someone without worrying about whether the vote is gonna be wasted. And, and this is very, very practical because uh, at this point, probably the top concern Elizabeth Warren has is the perception of electability uh, that, the, that the voters have. They, they like our policies a lot. They're just worried about whether they'd be quote unquote throwing their votes away if they vote for her instead of some of the people that are leading. I know it's so early, but yet people are still considering these kind of calculations. And that's deeply unfair to someone who is has great policies, uh, but has this specter of so-called electability hanging over their head. It's so crazy to be talking about electability uh, in April of 2015. Remember, April 2015 is when Bernie Sanders entered the race in the last time uh, we had a presidential election or Democratic primary. Um, you know, so I think what we should be talking about right now are ideas, ideas that would make people excited to vote Democratic um, and get as many candidates to talk about real ideas. And let's bracket the electability question. Um, and I want to help encourage that by giving us a way to count votes that doesn't punish you for voting for someone who doesn't seem like the most certain person to win. Um, you know, we'll get to the place where we can be worrying about who's gonna um, win the primary um, and who's going to uh, uh, beat Donald Trump in the general election. Those are two really important questions. But the Democratic Party has got to attract ideas that excite people to vote Democratic. And rather than like the last time, you know, picking the king, 
or in that case, the queen, um, you know, 24 months ahead of the election and uh, stifling excitement because of that choice. At this moment, they ought, be, ought to be encouraging and including as many people as they can so that we find the ideas that really excite people. You know, um, Mayor Pete has surprised a lot of people and with the appeal that he has. Um, uh, and I think that's exactly what this stage of the primary should be, a stage where people can talk about ideas and see which ideas really excite people. And uh, let's set up a system for counting votes that, it, that encourages that diversity rather than shuts it down at the very first step. So Larry, uh, the principal concern that uh, people have about ranked choice voting is about paper ballots, that it uh, makes paper ballots uh, difficult, if not impossible, and, and makes the verification of the voting process uh, much more difficult. What's your take on that? Yeah, so this is the way, so the way we've set it up, we're talking about it working in New Hampshire is this. Basically, every ballot is effectively a paper ballot in New Hampshire. Some of them are are counted through an optical scanner, and some of them in the traditional system are just counted as paper ballots. But under the system we're talking about, every ballot would look the same. They would all be ranked choice ballots. People just fill in their bubbles. You know, here's my first choice, my second choice, my third choice. Um, and then on the election night, those ballots would be counted in the old-fashioned way. So we'd figure we'd know on election night who won the most votes in New Hampshire. But then they'd be gathered and run through a tabulating machine that can then calculate the ranked choices so that our, our hope is by the morning, we'd be able to come out and say, um, here's the ranked choices uh, for votes in New Hampshire. So paper ballots help that just as easily as anything. We don't have to build new technology. Uh, and my real hope is if we can demonstrate that we can do it in New Hampshire, we could do the same thing in California because the only county or the only area that uh, suffers a technology problem in uh, California is, is Los Angeles. Um, but if we did the same system we adopted in New Hampshire, then we could imagine um, uh, figuring a ranked choice out of California as well. So uh, Professor Lessig, I wanna ask you one other question about uh, election reform on a different topic. So is it true, uh, that a convention uh, to propose an amendment can quote unquote run away uh, and uh, ratify amendments without going back to the states and fundamentally change the constitution without getting three quarters of the states to run away or is that basically a conspiracy theory? <laughs> uh, that is not true, um, that is uh, quintessential fake news. Um, and it's astonishing how it spreads uh, and is supported. Um, but uh, there is no way under our constitution with our Supreme Court uh, that a convention could do anything other than propose an amendment or propose a number of amendments, which then have to be sent to the states to be ratified or not. Um, the constitution is perfectly clear about it. There is zero chance that the Supreme Court would allow Congress to change that procedure. And never in the history of America, even at the first convention, did the convention itself change the procedure. Um, and so um, I, you know, all of this is, I think, is just a way to scare people uh, away from um, this method of amending the Constitution. And you know, Cenk, you and I have been in this fight for a long time. You remember when we spoke to our friend uh, Robert Reich before the election, and we're trying to persuade him that this would be a really great way to get the critical amendments we know our constitution needs into our constitution. And and Robert's view was, well, that yeah, sounds interesting, but why do we need to do that? We'll just appoint justices to the Supreme Court who give us what we need. Um, now, you know, um, 
I'm not one who believes we should amend the Constitution through, through the Supreme Court, but I'm one who's pretty sure we're not going to get the amendments we want through this Supreme Court. Um, that option, that door has been closed. So if you believe, as I believe, our Constitution needs to be fixed, there are fundamental uh, questions like the right to vote and an end to this corrupted system of uh, funding elections and gerrymandering, to name just three, that we have to fix inside this Constitution. The only way we can do it is through a convention. Uh, and so we have to get ourselves to recognize this and begin to build the movement to get it. And I know, you know, Wolfpack has obviously been doing enormously important work to build the support for that idea. So I just wanna say one last thing before we go. When we say our, our friend Robert Rice, that's totally true. He's, he's a wonderful guy, really smart guy. Uh, and we worked with him at different times on different issues uh, and a wonderful progressive. But unfortunately, this fear, this paranoia, and, and I don't call it a conspiracy theory lightly, it really is, has taken hold of so many uh, people on the left. Uh, that a convention has no rules and can run away and create anarchy and chaos. It's just not true, it's not remotely true on in any way, shape or form. The Justice Department doesn't agree, the American Bar Association doesn't agree, Congressional Research Service doesn't agree. And Article 5 is clear as day, it says it is for proposing amendments which must be ratified by three quarters of the states. So it's, yeah. it's, it's frustrating to see some on the left also buy in. Uh, to what used to be a, a conspiracy theory from the right wing. Uh, this was originally put forward by radicals in the right uh, who said you should never amend the Constitution because they wanted to preserve the status quo. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, I think that uh, we, you know they're going to come around. They're going to recognize um, that uh, you know we need a Constitution that actually speaks for the people. I think too many people on the left for too long. Imagine that you know the best hope for left leftist policies were five justices on the Supreme Court, and whether that was a you know a fair political judgment or not, I think we on the left have committed have to commit to the idea that a democracy ought to build support for its ideas from the bottom up, and when you look at the last election cycle and recognize 22 states built grassroots reform movements that succeeded, the largest number of state reform. Uh, efforts that pat to pass in the history of the United States, more than even in the progressive era in any one single election. I think that we on the left ought to say our ideas, these ideas for reform, for a democracy with the integrity to represent people equally are actually on the rise and we should grab them. And we should build a democratic movement with a small d to build support on the right and the left for things that uh, you and I know because you and I have spoken to people on the right and the left. There's no politics to this, people on both sides want a system that they don't think is corrupted and bought by special interests um, the way they think this system is. Uh, the only way we're gonna get that is through an Article 5 convention. And uh, we need to build that recognition and get people to get behind it because we don't have time to waste if we're gonna get any of these critical issues fixed. Right, and, and I think everybody watching knows this. If somebody tells you we should wait for the Supreme Court to change, how many decades is that gonna take? If yeah, they I'm not say- yeah, if they say that, oh no, we think we can get two thirds of Congress to get money out of politics. Really, does anyone really believe that right now? Yeah, so we're, one senator, name one senator on the right that's going to vote for that. You know, we get we need more than a dozen. So you know, but just show me one. That's right. So those are unfortunately appear to be disingenuous. So if you really want to get money out of politics, 
there appears to be one practical solution now, and it has actually led to half of our amendments. Pressure from a convention leads to amendments, including the Bill of Rights. It's time to act now and get money out of politics. So yeah, and you guys, you guys were really helpful in um, letting me try to put the story together in long form. Um, so there's a there's a a season of my podcast, Another Way, which you have on your website, um, which which tries to work through this step by step and tries to show people exactly the mistake that the other side is making. And I meet people all the time who've heard that and 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 you know are really grateful that somebody tries to take it slowly. Slow democracy movement, I think, is an important part of what's going to fix this and help people recognize um, where the mistakes are and how we can fix them. Um, and, and I think you guys have done an amazing job in helping to spread that message broadly. Thank you. And Larry Lessig, of course, uh, godfather of the movement to get money out of politics. And, and we appreciate all your work on it. Everybody check out that podcast at tyt.com. Check out wolf-pack.com if you want to see a practical solution for how to fix those problems. And I actually have good news about that. Coming up on tomorrow's program, so don't miss that either. Uh, great victory in one of the states that we'll talk about uh, tomorrow. Uh, Professor Lessig, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Great to see you, Jack. All right, we're gonna take a quick break. When we come back, uh, an injustice in Atlanta. Uh, and uh, it was another academic cheating scandal, but in this case, did they target African Americans uh, to disproportionately uh, punish? So we will talk about that when we return. All right, back. Uh, we're back on the Young Turks. Joining me now is Anna Simonton and Shani Robinson. Uh, they are the authors of None of the Above, The Untold Story of the Atlanta Public Schools Cheating Scandal, Corporate Greed, and the Criminalization of Educators. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you for having us. Thanks Great so to much. have you. So uh, this is a, a cheating scandal, not from uh, recently. Obviously, we had a big one in the news um, just a couple of weeks ago, but one from about a, a decade ago. And, and let me start uh, in you know interesting uh, note here. Shani, you were one of the people arrested. So, yeah. So what happened? And and uh, and did you get screwed? Absolutely. Um, in December of 2008, there was an article released in the Atlanta Journal Constitution about suspicious score jumps across the state of Georgia. And so this prompted the governor to do a statewide investigation. Um, and basically, what they learned was that 20% of the schools across the state of Georgia had high levels of wrong to right erasures. And so in 2013, I got a phone call from a GBI agent, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and he convinced me to meet him at a mall parking lot. And during the interview, he told me that there were several answers changed from wrong to right in my classroom and asked me, could I explain it? And I said no. And then he asked me, did any um, administrators or did the principal place any pressure on me to change my students' answers? And I said no. And then he pulls out this pre-written voluntary statement form that was basically saying, um, you don't have any knowledge about cheating and you didn't cheat. And he asked me to sign this form. Now, the thing about this form is that later it was used against educators who signed. Many of them were charged with false statements and writings, which is a felony. Um, and little did I know that that same day um, that I was interviewed by a GBI agent, they actually came into the schools to interview the rest of the teachers. There were no attorneys present, and many of us 
signed this form and were charged with false statements and writings. You were um, ultimately convicted as a result of that. Correct. I I went to trial and we were convicted. There were eleven us that were eleven of us that were convicted. So I want to get to your particular case in a second, Shani. Uh, but Anna, let me grow broader here. Was this a, a it was a real scandal, right? I mean, it was a real issue of cheating that was happening in the state of Georgia. First of all, tell me if that's true. And then secondly, if it was, was it just Atlanta or all over the state? Right, so like Shawnee said, this was statewide. 20% of schools in Georgia were found to have suspiciously high levels of wrong to right erasures. This was also nationwide. So really going back to No Child Left Behind, the law passed in 2001. Um, that mandated that schools increase test scores every year or else face sanctions that could include the state taking over schools, turning them into charters, um, things like that. Uh, We've seen now 40 states in the District of Columbia have cheating scandals. Um, So this is not unusual, it's unfortunate, um, but it's not unusual. But it was only in Atlanta public schools where teachers the majority of them black teachers, so out of 35 indicted, 34 were black, all were people of color. Um, Only in this case have we seen teachers facing RICO charges, charges that were created to bring down the American mafia and organized crime, facing decades in prison. Um, And interestingly, there was also an investigation after that sort of initial probe showed that they're cheating in 20% of Georgia's schools, likely cheating, suspected cheating. There were investigations into Atlanta public schools, but also Doherty County schools um, in in, uh, Albany, Georgia. And that investigation showed that cheating was in fact on par um, with Atlanta in terms of how widespread it was in the district, and yet no charges were ever brought there. And one of the things we point out in the book is that um, the superintendent of Doherty County Schools was a, a white woman, whereas in Atlanta you had um, Dr. Beverly Hall, who at the time was seen as a rising star in um, urban education and often had disagreements with the governor, Sonny Perdue. So. When it's happening all over Georgia, but 34 out of the 35 people being arrested were African American women or African Americans, um, it's not that subtle to figure out what's happening. Uh, when you choose to uh, hone in on only one location to be able to blame one set of people rather than tackling the actual problem statewide, we get a sense of perhaps there's a different agenda here. So that part is clear. Shani, let's go back to your uh, particular case. You're appealing your conviction, is that right? Correct, and right now the difficulty that we are having is getting the judge off of our case. During the trial, there was a lot of judicial misconduct that took place. He tried to assist a state witness with identifying one of my co-defendants. He had a private conversation uh, with a district attorney. And he also tried to bully my co-defendants into taking the district attorney's sentencing agreement. Initially, after we were convicted, he told our attorneys that we could have an appeal bond and first first time offender status. But once he learned that my co-defendants refused to take the district attorney's sentencing agreement, which included giving up your constitutional right to appeal, the judge took it all back. And he said that he wasn't granting anyone Um, anything. And so our attorney said, but judge, you've already promised him this. He said, well, I guess I'm just an Indian giver. Yeah, he was very, very inappropriate and and really vindictive is what we saw. Um, And he told the jury before they handed down the conviction 
Um, whatever your verdict is, I'll defend it until the day that I die. And so we know that he's not impartial. Um, and we know that the, the trial was full of flaws throughout to the point where the judge said at one point perjury is being committed daily here. Um, so people who were pressured to take plea agreements were recanting on the stand to the point where even the judge acknowledged that testimony was, um, was that there were problems with it, that it was perjury. Right. And yet he didn't strike it from the record, didn't allow for a mistrial. Right, but Shani, uh, how much money did you make uh, from this so-called cheating scandal? Uh, you must have gotten a big bonus, right? Zero dollars. Um, hmm. Schools were given bonus money if they met the district targets, which were um, benchmarks imposed by the Atlanta Public Schools Administration and Board. In my school, we did not meet our district targets. So I've never received any bonus money. Not only that, I taught first grade. My test scores did not even count. But yet I was charged with racketeering. I was facing 25 years in prison. So wait a minute. Um, that's the wrinkle of the story I didn't know. I, I knew that you uh, did not get a bonus and got no money. And so that would have been a curious scam to run. Uh, and my understanding was that the, it was a practice test uh, that uh, had changed answers in your case. Is that right? Well, the first and second grade test scores did not count. Um, so yes, they were like practice tests. Yeah, Oh, I see what you're saying. So mm -hmm. how could they possibly convict you uh, on trying to increase the scores for no child left behind policies if first grade doesn't count. It's crazy. That's what we thought too. Um, we have no idea, um, but as Anna stated before, during the trial, there was perjured testimony. Witnesses were recanting their stories on the witness stand. There was actually a woman who came in to testify against me and they asked her, why did you cheat? And she told them that she cheated to meet the district targets. But she was a second grade teacher, there were no district targets. And so it makes me wonder, did someone tell her to say that? Because she was a veteran teacher. I don't know how she could not have known that there were no district targets or that her test scores didn't even count. It's like, it was like, it's like accusing me of being part of the cheating scandal. Like, oh, did you change Anna's scores? Right. How would that be relevant? I don't understand, right? Well, and the jury had a very huge task that this was an eight month trial, right? So this was the longest criminal trial in Georgia history. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of that was um, prosecution witnesses. And so right. the way that that sort of slanted in the eyes of the jury, um, the, the sort of the story in their eyes, I think has a lot to do with their ultimate um, decision. Man, there are so many injustices in this country that go unaddressed. It's it's maddening. But I want to focus on one other thing as part of the book, which is the amount of money that is taken away from budgets in the education departments and given to things like the city's tax allocation districts. So, Anna, let me start with you on that one. What is that? How much money is is that? Uh, is that and and where does it go? Yeah, a tax allocation district or TAD in Georgia is similar to something that other cities have called tax increment financing or TIF. And it's essentially a geographic area where the property taxes are frozen at a certain year. And as gentrification happens and property values rise, the additional revenue goes into a slush fund for developers. So that's a long way of saying that it's a way to give uh, public funding to private developers. 
And property taxes are supposed to go to the city, the county, and the public school system. And so um, Atlanta Public Schools has missed out on $434 million since the year 2000 that has gone to build luxury condos, boutique retail uh, developments, and something called the Beltline that is our rails to trails project. It's one of the biggest drivers of gentrification in the city. So great, take money away from education and give it towards gentrification. Sounds lovely. Uh, um, gee, I wonder why they had to do voter suppression in Georgia to make sure Stacey Abrams didn't win. Uh, okay, so uh, Shani, last thing, do you have a legal defense fund? Because I have a sense that people watching this might wanna contribute to it. Well, we have, I have a public defender um, and, and I, do, I do like my attorneys. Um, but as far as being any type of assistance, we just ask people to um, subscribe to our website, um, teacherontrial.com, so we can give everyone updates. Um, at this point, that's the best way to help us um, right now, just staying updated on our case. We just need more eyes on this case so that the appeal is handled the proper way. All right, and the book is called None of the Above. Yes. Uh, Shani and Anna, thank you so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks. No problem. That's what we're here for, trying to correct uh, injustices one case at a time. All right, uh, we've got a great post game for you guys. And believe it or not, it is about Anna's woodworking. <laughs> and I believe there's a video involved. TYT.com slash join to become a member. TYT.com slash trial to try it for a week for free. All right, we'll see you in the post game.